Welcome. Thank you all com for coming. We're so glad to have you here at the Cato Institute this evening. Um, my name is Emily Eakins. I'm a research fellow here at the Cato Institute, and I will be moderating tonight's event. In the national bestseller Freakonomics, renowned economist Stephen Levitt and Stephen Dubner, journal a journalist, use the economic way of thinking to explain a variety of social phenomena, including how people choose baby names, sumo wrestling, declining crime rates, parenting, cheating, all sorts of things. They demonstrated to the mass market how the economic way of thinking could explain a number of things in their own lives that wasn't just about the stereotypical way of thinking about economics, like money or stock trades and uh, things like that. At the Cato Institute, in which we endeavor to promote individual liberty, free markets, limited government, and peace, we also take, we also, like uh, the Freakonomics, um, apply the economic way of thinking to what we do here and how we analyze government policy. We seek to look beyond the surface to understand the second and third order effects of things the unintended and the unexpected consequences of the policies that we pursue and the legislation that we pass. In the same vein, we are very pleased to have with us journalist John Berger, author of Datanomics, in which he also applies the economic way of thinking in order to explain the current dating phenomena in America. I'd now like to turn the time over to attorney and president of the Network of Enlightened Women, Karen Agnes, who will tell you a little bit more about her, her organization and also give a formal introduction to, to tonight's author. It's great to be here at the Cato Institute, a leading think tank promoting individual liberty and free market ideas. Thank you to Emily Eakins and the Cato Institute for partnering with the Network of Enlightened Women to host this book forum. Those of us who believe in markets recognize the key role that information and knowledge play in setting markets and setting the right levels of supply and demand. In Washington, when we think about markets, we often think about public policy and how government intervention leads to inefficiencies. I'm sure a lot of people in the crowd spend a lot of their days thinking about that topic. Now, but it's easy, often, to overlook how markets work in even more important ways where we live, where we work, where we spend our free time, and yes, ultimately, with whom we date, love, and marry. Markets affect all of these areas of our lives. In his new book, Datanomics, How Dating Became a Lopsided Numbers Game, John Berger addresses the ways that, mar that markets affect dating, the hookup culture, and marriage. He writes about how the laws of supply and demand explain the romantic opportunities available to us. I thoroughly enjoyed this book, and I think it's explained a lot, and I think you all will too. What is so valuable about this book is that it will help provide knowledge and information. Any market inefficiency that allows one group to take advantage of another group won't last for long where the inefficiency derives from discoverable information. Mr. Berger writes, we can expect that the imbalance of men and women in certain places, certain cities, certain colleges, certain communities, will rebalance over time as people become aware of the message of datanomics and adapt. 
One of our missions in the Network of Enlightened Women, known as NEW, is to provide information to young women who often only get one side of issues when it comes to policy and culture. Started 11 years ago, NEW is a national network of young, right-of-center young women who are interested in policy and culture. We are training a new generation of young women to come work at our think tanks and be public policy leaders. What started as one book club at the University of Virginia has now expanded into a nationwide network with chapters around the country on college campuses and also chapters in cities, including DC and New York. There's a real demand for programming for right-of-center women. In addition to our chapters, we host the largest gathering for right-of-center college women in DC each summer. We provide professional development trainings, coordinate an essay contest, host a young women's leadership retreat, and even host an event to honor college gentlemen and young professional gentlemen called the Gentleman's Showcase. If you would like to join our movement, please feel free to sign up to become a member. We've got discounted rates for young professionals and students, and you can talk to us after the event. You can also go to our website, www.enlightenswomen.org. Now, New and Cato, we share an interest in promoting free thought and the free exchange of ideas. And that's one of the reasons that we're excited to partner with Cato on this event tonight. I look forward to this discussion of datanomics. Mr. Berger is a contributor to Fortune Magazine, a former senior writer at Fortune and Money, and he's an award-winning journalist who has written for Time, Barron's, Bloomberg Businessweek, and has appeared on MSNBC, CNN, and CNBC, among others. Mr. Berger joined us from New York. Welcome. So thank you, Karen, for the kind introduction. Um, I want to thank the Cato Institute for hosting tonight's event, uh, and of course, Karen and the uh, Network of Enlightened Women for inviting me and for organizing the event. Hopefully, everyone will be even more enlightened by the time we're, we're done tonight. Um, so my plan is to talk for about 30 minutes, and then after my prepared remarks, we can do about 30 minutes of Q&A. Uh, I'll stick around a little while afterwards if anybody wants to chat or if anybody would like me to sign copies of the book. You can also get in touch with me via my website, which is dateonomics.com. OK, so let me tell you a bit about the book and how I came to write it. The first question that usually comes up is something like this. How the heck did a married 46-year-old financial writer uh, for Fortune magazine, somebody who normally writes about oil and gas or the stock market, how the heck did I end up writing a book about dating? So here's the story. The staffs at Money and Fortune, my last two employers, were disproportionately women. The, over time, I couldn't help but notice that most of the men were married, like me, whereas most of the women were single, many of them unhappily single. And a lot of my female friends had these dating histories, these dating stories that just didn't make any sense to me. They would go out with guys who would never call them back, or they had boyfriends who cheated on them unapologetically, or some of them claimed never to get asked out on dates at all. And I have one friend from college, a woman who is literally the most attractive person I'm friends with, who can... Uh, <laughs> And she confided in me before, you know, as I was writing the book that she had not been asked out on a date in six months. So as I said, none of this made any sense to me. But at first, I figured this was some kind of a fluke unique to my own circle of friends. I think that the tipping point was a lunch I had with my friend Sarah. 
Sarah had been dating the same guy for a long time. And while Sarah and I are more work friends than personal friends, um, it certainly seemed like she and her boyfriend, Matt, were well on their way to getting married. So before our drinks arrived, I asked Sarah about Matt casually, and her expression basically crumpled. Uh, she sighed and told me that she and Matt had just broken up. Matt had informed her that he just wasn't quite ready to settle down. See, here's the thing. Matt, he's 45 years old. <laughs> he and Sarah had been dating for three years. Sarah was 38 years old at the time, and everyone knew that she wanted to get married and have kids. So for Matt to basically run out her clock to let the relationship drag on for almost three years without intending to marry Sarah, it just all seemed kind of cruel. Months later, I shared Sarah's story with Maria Avgatidis, who is a Manhattan matchmaker and dating coach. Maria told me she'd heard some version of this story so often that she'd come up with a moniker for the men. She calls them time thieves. And the key thing you need to know about my friend Sarah is that she literally has everything going for her. She's kind, she's funny, she's very good company. She's an Ivy Leaguer who looks like a cable news anchor. Uh, given the amount of time Sarah spends at the gym, I bet you anything she's more fit at 38 than she was at 28. Frankly, I just couldn't figure out why Sarah would have any difficulty convincing Matt that it was time to get married. So, so that's basically how I came up with the idea for the book. I wanted to find out why, it was, why dating was so difficult for women like Sarah, and also why men like Matt seemed to have so many options. Now, I must admit that my theory going into all this was different from where I ended up. Initially, I assumed that this shortage of college-educated men was a phenomenon unique to a handful of big cities like Washington or New York or London or Toronto or LA. I figured there was something about the job markets in these very cosmopolitan cities that attracted disproportionate numbers of women. Well, it turned out that the problem that I call the man deficit is not a big city problem. It's not, or not just a big city problem. It's a, nation, it's a nationwide problem. In the US, there are now 5.5 million college-educated women who are aged 22 to 29 versus 4.1 million college-educated men in the same age bracket. Now, pause for a moment and let those, I think you're already pausing for, <laughs> let those numbers sink in. According to the US Census Bureau's American Community Survey, among college grads in their 20s, there are now 5.5 million women versus 4.1 million men. That's 33% more women than men, that's four women for every three men. And what I found most interesting about the dating math is it's actually worse in rural states. Montana has 52% more college grad women than men among millennials. In Arkansas, it's 49% more female college grads. That compares to 34% more women than men in Washington, DC among young college grads, 30% in New York State, and 20% in California. As daunting as this four to three ratio may be for women, the actual dating math is even worse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, mathematically, dating is a bit like, like the game Musical Chairs. Um, and if you ever played Musical Chairs as a kid, you probably recall that in the very first round of Musical Chairs, it's almost impossible to lose. Basically, you have to be eating paste or chasing butterflies <laughs> not to get a chair, right? Uh, it, 
but by the last round of musical chairs, you have a 50% chance of not getting a chair. The longer you stay in the game, the greater your chances are of losing. And in this way, the dating game is similar. So just imagine a dating pool that starts out with 40 women and 30 men, which is essentially what, what's confronting millennials these days. Once half of those women get married, once half of the 40 women get married, the dating pool for the remaining singles becomes 20 women and 10 men. In other words, the ratio of, of, of women to men goes from 1.3 to 1 at the start of the dating game to 2 to 1 at the midway point. So that, in a nutshell, is why dating feels so much harder for women at 33 than it did at 23. It's not that you're returning his text message an hour too soon or an hour too late. <laughs> this, is a this is a demographic problem. It is not a strategic problem. Now, just to be completely clear, my message is not that women have to get married at 23, or even that anybody has to get married at all. Personally, I don't care whether people prioritize family over career or career over family. My intention is certainly not to scare young women into believing that they can't have it all, that they can't have a career or a fun personal life without jeopardizing some future hope of marital bliss. My goal is merely to help people make informed life decisions. So if you're a heterosexual woman who puts a high priority on marriage, and I acknowledge that is not everyone, but if that's you, you should be aware that the marriage math will be more challenging should you decide to put off getting serious about dating until your early 30s. Now, one of my arguments in datanomics is that the college and post-college hookup culture is largely a byproduct of these lopsided gender ratios. The counter-argument I hear most often from skeptics involves the influence of popular culture or the media. In other words, couldn't it just be that times have changed? Couldn't it be that movies and television and sexually explicit lyrics are what's really behind young people having more sex? Look, I'm, I'm not so naive as to believe that pop culture and the media exert zero influence over our behavior. Those of us like me with teenagers uh, are well aware of how actors and athletes and pop stars can influence the way that our kids talk or dress or even think. The problem I have with blaming the media for the hookup culture is based purely on the data. While college kids may be having more sex than ever, it turns out that high school students are having less sex these days, not more. According to the US Centers for Disease Control, the percentage of teenagers who are sexually active today is lower than it was in 1988, which was the height of the AIDS crisis. So if Hollywood really is trying to promote promiscuity, let's just say Hollywood is doing a terrible job. Now, of course, lopsided gender ratios among college graduates would not matter so much if we were all a bit more open-minded about whom we date and eventually marry. There have been multiple studies on this subject, most recently by Jeremy Greenwood, who's an economist at University of Pennsylvania. And what studies like his have found is a steady decrease in what I call educational intermarriage. In other words, the chances of someone with a college degree marrying somebody without a college degree, those chances are lower today than at any point over the past 50 years. My personal suspicion is that online dating makes this worse. Online dating is a bit like choosing options on a new car. You check off various boxes for your ideal mate, height, weight, race, 
dog person, cat person, oceans, lake, that kind of thing. For the children of the suburbs, nobody ever thinks twice about checking off that box for college graduate. As a result, few college grads ever even see the dating profiles of single people who lack a college degree. A few weeks ago, I actually got a Twitter message from a woman who told me she met her husband after she unchecked the college education box on her online dating site. Now, it's not fair, but for men refusing to consider, I'm sorry, for, for men refusing to consider working class women doesn't really cost them anything. The pool of college educated women is just so vast that men pay no real penalty for refusing to, to date somewhat, someone who is less educated than they are. For college educated women, however, not expanding their dating pool to include working class guys carries a high price. Not only are they making it statistically more challenging to find a match, but in doing so, women are giving way too much leverage to college educated men. Those men know they are in high demand, and a lot of them act accordingly. Over the years, sociologists, psychologists, and economists have done a lot of research on sex ratios and their impact. The findings are really consistent. When men are the ones in oversupply, or women in undersupply, depending on your perspective, the dating culture is more likely to emphasize courtship and monogamy and romance. The dating culture is more traditional, Men must make a long-term commitment in order to attract a wife, and thus men actually have an evolutionary incentive to be good husbands and fathers. As a result, monogamy is embraced and divorce is less common. When it comes to studying sex ratios, college campuses are perfect case studies because colleges operate as self-contained dating pools. In other words, students tend to date other students. And while the average college campus these days is 57% female, that's four women for every three men, there are, of course, still colleges out there that have more men than women. One of them is California Institute of Technology, better known as Caltech, in Pasadena, California. Caltech is 59% male, which is essentially three women for every two men. I paid a visit to Caltech while researching my book. With the help of the editor of Caltech student newspaper, I arranged a focus group with a dozen Caltech students. Here's what I learned. At Caltech, hookups aren't even part of the dating vernacular. As one woman told me, the guys are never going to get into a situation where they're hooking up every night because the girls just won't go for it. When Caltech students get involved romantically, it's almost always in the context of a relationship. Students told me it was extremely common for couples who got together freshman year to stay together all four years. One, one, one young woman told me that when she was a freshman, um, an advisor in her freshman dorm urged her not to rush into her first college relationship. She told me, you'll probably end up marrying the guy. <laughs> On a lark, I asked the Caltech students what Valentine's Day was like there. The answer I got was kind of equally adorable and flabbergasting. One young man told me with tremendous enthusiasm that his dorm, Lloyd House, has a long-standing Valentine's Day tradition. It turns out all the men make handcrafted Valentines for the women. <laughs> and then they wake up at the crack of dawn to cook the women pancakes. 
What stories like these so clearly demonstrate is that dating culture truly is more monogamous when women are scarce. After college, one place where you really see this play out is in Silicon Valley, uh, which is basically the only well-populated part of the country where young college grad men outnumber young college grad women by a significant margin. Geographically, Santa Clara County, California, is a pretty good proxy for Silicon Valley. The county seat, San Jose, is often referred to as Man Jose by the locals, <laughs> and with really good reason. Among single college-educated people, 22 to 29, Santa Clara County has 38% more single men than women. And this oversupply of men affects dating and marriage in really predictable ways. Among college grads in their 30s, 78% of the women in Santa Clara County are married. That compares to 48% in Washington, D.C., 58% in Chicago, and 46% in Boston. What's even more interesting is those marriages in Silicon Valley, they're more stable too. Only 4% of Santa Clara County's college grad women aged 30 to 39 are divorced or separated, 4%. Nationally, it's 9%. Men must also make a greater financial commitment when women are scarce. There's an economics professor at MIT, a guy named Joshua Angrist, who studied immigrant communities in the late 1800s and early 1900s, back when immigrants to the US were disproportionately men. What Angrist found was that men needed to earn more in order to attract a wife. The married men earned 10% more than the men who were unmarried. This is just as true today. If there is an undersupply of men in the college-educated dating pool, that obviously means there's an oversupply in the non-college or working-class dating pool. In fact, among Americans aged 22 to 29 who did not have a college degree, there are now 9.4 million single men versus only 7.1 million single women. This woman deficit, so to speak, within the working class plays out exactly how Professor Angrist's research suggests it should. Among non-college men aged 25 to 30 who are fully employed, the ones who are married earn 20% more than the ones who are unmarried. Circling back to Silicon Valley, the reason Santa Clara County has more men, obviously, is because the high-tech industry employs so many engineers and programmers, professions that, for better or for worse, tend to attract more men. Santa Clara County also happens to boast the highest median income of any county in the United States. Now, I'm not going to suggest that median incomes out there would be merely average were it not for the shortage of women. However, I do believe that wealth creation in Silicon Valley has been supercharged by this shortage of women. Listen to what Tom Summit, a tech industry executive recruiter in Boston, Listen to the advice that Tom Summit gives to men employed in Boston's high-tech sector. Quote, countless venture capitalists, pundits, and most anybody else involved in the Silicon Valley startup scene will ask you, when are you moving out here? This is where it's happening. They want you, they need you, and they will own your butt. Because what they don't tell you is that you will have nothing else to occupy your attention and keeping you from working 80 hours a week, cranking code with your nose in a computer screen. Why? Because there are no women to distract you from your tasks. Another place where you really clearly see the economic impact of too few women is China. 
As most of you probably know, China's old one-child policy caused an increase in sex, selec sex selection, abortion, female infanticide, and the foreign adoption of many Chinese girls. All of this present day has created a shortage of marriage-age women. There are now 122 young men in China for every 100 young women. As a result, Chinese women now possess tremendous economic bargaining power when it comes to marriage. That means young men and the parents of boys must accumulate greater wealth in order to impress a potential bride. Two economists, Shang Jinwei, who's a professor at Columbia University, and Jiabo Chang, who's a senior economist at the International Food Policy Research Institute here in Washington, they have gone so far as to suggest that this pressure on men and on parents of boys to earn more is responsible for 20% of China's GDP growth. It's gotten to the point where a middle-class bachelor must own his own apartment and a new car in order to be considered husband material in China. A story in the LA Times contained this quote from one Chinese bachelorette. I would rather cry in a BMW than smile on the back of my boyfriend's bicycle. <laughs> a more recent story from Bloomberg News contained this even more amazing comment from a young Chinese husband expecting his first child. I would hope it's a girl, he said, because boys are too expensive. Now, that is an unbelievable statement when you consider the way Chinese culture has glorified boy babies going back almost a thousand years. Okay, so now we know what happens when women are scarce. Let's look at what happens when men are scarce, which is the current situation today among college students and college grad millennials. Sociologists and psychologists who study sex ratios have found that when sex ratios skew female, the whole dating culture becomes more sexualized. The good news, according to clinical sex surveys, is that everyone seems to have better sex. And yes, this apparently applies to married folks too. Uh, clinical sex studies show that when gender ratios skew female, couples engage in more foreplay, more experimentation, and have more frequent intercourse. The bad news for single women is that the single men are in no rush to settle down. Marriage rates decline, divorce rates go up, and out-of-wedlock births become more commonplace. As I said before, one of my core arguments is that today's hookup culture is largely a byproduct of gender ratios, and not Tinder, not MTV, or any of the other explanations that some people glom onto. I know that that Vanity Fair story on Tinder generated a lot of buzz. But my take was that, was that story was just unbelievably naive. Tinder is less than four years old. The hookup culture was alive and well long before Tinder arrived. There's actually a rather long and ridiculous history of folks mistakenly blaming the latest, two the latest new technology for a rise in sexual permissiveness. In the 1920s, for example, people blamed the automobile for the rise of the flapper generation. A house of prostitution on wheels is how one state court judge <laughs> described it. The real explanation for the loosening of sexual mores had nothing to do with the automobile. Some 10 million young men died during World War I. Another 20 million were injured, many of them grievously. This created an incredibly lopsided dating market after World War I ended. 
I don't know if any of you have read Irene Nemirovsky's novel, The Fires of Autumn. Nemirovsky came of age in 1920s France. And The Fires of Autumn reflects the social sensibilities of that era. In her novel, a young war widow named Therese thinks she is being courted for marriage by her childhood friend Bernard, only to discover that he wants nothing more than a fling. Bernard, in turn, is baffled by Therese's unwillingness to carry on a casual affair. Given the shortage of young men in post-World War I Europe, Bernard cannot understand why any bachelor would want to settle down. You want to have some fun, he asked Therese rhetorically. Fine. You don't? Goodbye. There are too many women, and they're all too easy to make it worthwhile. Spend some time on college campuses, as I have, and you'll find a lot of men who sound an awful lot like Bernard. Women at disproportionately female schools talk openly about their frustrations. Everyone's self-esteem takes a hit, a young woman at 75% female Sarah Lawrence College told me. This young woman complained to me that the men of Sarah Lawrence have little interest in exclusive relationships. Why would they, she told me. It's like they have their own free harem. She continued, one of my friends was dumped by a guy after they'd been hooking up for less than a week. When he broke up with her, the guy actually used the word market, like the market for him was just too good. A male Sarah Lawrence student I interviewed shared a similar assessment, although he wasn't really bemoaning uh, Sarah Lawrence's hookup culture. He was essentially celebrating it. He told me, there really isn't a culture of monogamy or even dating here. Sometimes it feels like you can have anyone you want. Now, to be clear, this guy was no Tom Brady. I mean, he, he kind of looked like John Lennon circa 1970, except even more malnourished. Yet his, his stories were just so, shall we say, colorful that at one point I blurted out and I just had to ask him how many of his current female friends he'd had sex with, just his current ones. Oh, I'd say at least 20, he told me. Yeah, that was my reaction too. And he saw that and he added a little qualifier just to take the edge off it. He told me, you should know that includes some threesomes and foursomes. The gender ratio at Sarah Lawrence is particularly extreme. It's three women for every one man. But in terms of the dating culture, it's not as much of an outlier as you'd think. In the appendix of Datanomics, I include a table that ranks 35 major public and private colleges by their gender ratios, and then pairs that data with students' own description of dating life at their schools. The descriptions are courtesy of Niche.com, which is a college review website that's authored entirely by students. So here's what Niche had to say about some schools that are 60% or more women. At 50% female Boston University, quote, freshman year is a sexual explosion. There are girls to go around and around again. At 61% female New York University, quote, guys take advantage of the male to female ratio and most have no plans of settling into a long-term relationship. Closer to Washington, 63% female James Madison University. Quote, the deficiency of guys creates a scene that tends to embrace random hookups. Even at Baylor University, a Baptist school steeped in Christian values, Baylor's ratio of three women for every two men still has a big impact. 
According to Niche.com's write-up of Dating at Baylor, quote, the same girls that run in the social hookup circles on Friday night are taking you to church with them on Sunday. The guys practice the requisite Christian business principles, but blow through the Baylor babes that are in endless supply. Another 6040 college is UNC Chapel Hill. A few years ago, the New York Times wrote a story about the shortage of men at University of North Carolina. The story contained this quote from a female UNC undergrad. Quote, a lot of my friends will meet someone and go home for the night and just hope for the best the next day. They'll text them and say, I had a great time, want to hang out next week, and they don't respond. Even worse, girls feel pressured to do more than they're comfortable with just to lock it down. By comparison, the college dating scene is much more traditional at schools that are either majority male or at least have gender ratios closer to 50-50. I already told you about Caltech. Here's what Niche.com has to say about Georgia Tech, which is 66% male. Tech is a fairly monogamous campus, and people like to be in a relationship. How about Tufts University, which is 50-50 thanks to a big engineering program? According to Niche.com, at Tufts, quote, halfway through sophomore year, people begin to pair off and generally stay paired off through junior and senior year. Or consider University of Miami. Yes, it's a notorious party school, but it's one that's only 53% female. Remember, the average is 57%. According to Niche, quote, random hookups are common in the beginning, but after a few months or a year, relationships take over. It isn't just the dating culture that changes when women are in oversupply. Sex ratios can have economic and even political impacts, too. Just as men earn more when women are scarce, women become more career-minded when, when it's the men who are scarce. Christina Durante, who's a marketing professor at Rutgers Business School, Durante conducted a series of psychological experiments in which young single women were presented with information that caused them to believe that their local dating market either had too few men or too many men. The study participants were asked which was more important to them. After, after the initial stage, they were asked which is more important to them, career or family. Durante found that the women who thought that there were too many men were more likely to prioritize family, whereas the women who thought there were too many women were more likely to prioritize career. Durante concluded that sex ratios, quote, lead women to seek more lucrative careers when it will be more difficult to secure a mate. As I said, there can be a political impact, too. The pioneering book on sex ratios, titled Too Many Women, was the brainchild of the late Marsha Gutentag, a psychology professor at Harvard University who died prematurely at age 44 in 1977. She died before she finished the book, but Too Many Women was completed and co-authored by Paul Secord, Gutentag's second husband and a fellow academic. As counterintuitive as it may sound, Gutentag and Secord conclude that feminist movements are energized when men are in short supply. Here's what they wrote. What we are suggesting in answer to the sex ratio question is that given the abundance of unattached women, men will shape to their advantage the form that, that relationships between men and women take. With a surplus of women, sexual freedoms are more advantageous to, to men than to women. 
These circumstances should impel women to seek more power and incidentally turn them towards meeting their own needs. Most forms of feminism are directed to just such ends. On college campuses, the surge in feminist activity has been fueled by growing concerns about sexual assault. I believe these concerns are very real, but I also believe that lopsided gender ratios are part of the problem. Another one of Marsha Gutentag's counterintuitive sounding findings in Too Many Women was that throughout history, when ratios of women to men were high, rape was more prevalent and it was also punished less severely. More recently, sociologists and criminologists have studied FBI and Interpol crime data and reached the same conclusion. In the words of University of Oregon sociologist Robert O'Brien, elevated rates of sexual assault, quote, are a predictable feature of countries with a relative scarcity of men. The opposite is true of countries with a relative scarcity of women. Columbia University economics professor Lena Edlund investigated the impact of lopsided sex ratios in China, where young men now outnumber women by 20%. Edlund and her co-authors discovered that although overall crime rates went up in China as the gender ratio skewed more male, that's not surprising given that men are more prone to criminality, there was a significant decline in sexual assault. It seems that men treat women better and protect them more when women are in shorter supply. Now, can I, pr can I prove beyond all doubt that such findings apply to college campuses? that sexual assault is less common at schools that are at least 50% male? No, I cannot, because the available, the available data tends to reveal as much about how forthright colleges are in handling sexual assaults and how comfortable women feel coming forward as it does about the actual frequency of assaults on a particular campus. That said, I was intrigued by a recent Washington Post story on this topic. The article ranked 27 colleges by their sexual assault rates, and I could not help but notice which college had the lowest rate. It was Caltech, a school that is 59% male. Okay, I think I'm going to stop here. Um, the one bigger topic or big topic I have not yet addressed is something I hope or assume I'll be asked about during the Q&A which is what kind of advice I might have for single women seeking to improve their dating odds. Um, I also have ideas about how we can get long-term more, more boys and young men attending college. And hopefully somebody will ask me about that too. So thank you all for listening and I look forward to taking questions. Thank you very much, John, for your remarks. Um, before we open it up to Q&A, I just have a few comments that I wanted to make. Um, I really enjoyed reading your book. Um, we have it for sale outside. If you guys are interested in reading it, I highly recommend it. It's a good read. And summarizes a lot of really interesting academic research on the, uh, the causal impact of gender ratio imbalances in society today and historically. Um, and it's I was actually not aware of the gender imbalance among men and women, um, college-educated men and women, and was really interested to see the academic research that you summarize that finds potential causal impacts not just on marriage rates and divorce rates, but sexual mores, 
the, the average level of debt and household spending, potential household earnings, whether one puts additional focus on family or career, or even the actual meaning of beauty. Um, one of the articles you cited said that people's um, evaluation of the symmetry of someone's face was causally impacted by whether they felt there were more men or women um, surrounding them. So that was very fascinating. And I find it interesting that colleges and universities, which are impeccably good at finding inequality and oppression everywhere, do not see this particular gender imbalance as alarming. And particularly given the, the academic literature on the potential impacts of gender balance ratios, I found it you know, even more surprising that it seems to go so um, even if it's noticed, no one it doesn't seem to be a, a cause for alarm. So why isn't there more concern for today's boys in particular? Because if we're looking at um, college graduation rates, um, we should be asking, why aren't there more men going to college? And at Cato, um, as you can probably imagine, my first impulse is not to think, what law can we pass? But rather to think, what is the root of this issue? What are the incentives that could be encouraging this phenomenon? Um, and this led me to think, um, or at least consider, um, school choice and reforms that we can make um, of our educational system to be able to serve both our boys and girls so they have an equal opportunity to be going to college. Um, now, we do know that there is a biological advantage to some degree, which you cite in your book, that women tend to, or girls tend to develop and mature earlier, which leads them to be more engaged in school at younger ages, get better grades, and apply to colleges. And college rewards people who develop earlier and younger. Um, but we know that this is not just a biological issue because there are countries um, like Germany, Switzerland, um, Japan, and China in which the gender uh, imbalance among college graduates is far less um, than the United States. So this leads me to think that there actually are things we could do with our educational system to serve both our boys and girls. Um, now, I don't pretend to have all the solutions. I'm not an education policy wonk. I do public opinion and data, data ana um, analytics here at Cato. Um, but what I think we should consider um, is ways we can give more choices to parents and flexibility to schools to discover better ways to serve both boys and girls and improve the educational quality. And there is promising evidence that giving schools additional choices and flexibility to find new ways to teach their students better um, actually could prove fruitful. Um, in randomized controlled studies, which are considered the gold standard in academic research, where you can actually identify a causal effect rather than just a correlation, they have found evidence that students who receive school vouchers um, and thus are not confined to the traditional school system where you go to school where your house is, um, or if your parents are wealthy enough to send you to private school, that they find that students that were given school vouchers sc scored better on math and reading exams. So for instance, in Charlotte, North Carolina, students who received vouchers scored eight points higher than the control group um, in reading and seven points higher in math. Similar results were found in Milwaukee. 
There's also some indication that school choice reforms lead to higher graduation rates, which implies you would at least expect to help improve college, um, college admittance as well. Um, in a randomized controlled study in Washington, D.C., um, Washington, D.C.'s voucher program, students graduated at a rate 12 percentage points higher than in the control group. Research has also shown that the high school you go to actually, the high school you go to specifically matters. One academic study published in the Educational Researcher found that the high school one attends accounted for about 11 percentage points of the gap between men and women who go, um, the percentage of men and women who go to college. So school choice reforms do not just take one form. Um, it's about the process of discovery, letting the market of schools, teachers, and students figure out what works for them. Now, I realize this isn't just a, um, we're not here just to talk about policy. We're here to talk about the economics of dating. Um, but I do think that's something that's worth considering. Um, and given that the gender balance, that this imbalance is known, and that potential causal effects of it are also known, I'm interested to know John's thoughts on why he thinks universities haven't considered this more of a problem. And if school choice offers ways to address this, why aren't we doing more to talk about this and figure out ways that we can serve both girls and boys and improve the educational quality here in the United States? So before we turn officially to Q&A, um, I wanted to just have a few housekeeping um, points. Um, we will be taking questions on Twitter tonight. For those of you following the conversation online, you can follow us with the hashtag Dateonomics. Um, and we will be taking questions from, from Twitter, so go ahead and ask those questions. Um, please wait, for, the, for those of you here in the auditorium, please uh, wait to be called upon, and we will have someone bring you a microphone so everyone in the room can hear you. And also, please announce your name and your affiliation. Um, but before we get started, I would like to let Karen ask the first question before we get, um, get started with Q&A. Thank you, Emily. And thank you, John, for that great, great presentation. Um, I think you did a, a great job um, really identifying a problem. Um, one issue we talk a lot about in our organization is the hookup culture. So the solutions that you raise for that is something that I'm very interested in. And the point that you make that it might not be so much a product of changing values but a byproduct of demographics. Yeah. Um, and when I go and speak on college campuses, it's amazing how often the students bemoan the fact that there's a 60 to 40 ratio in a way that their women's studies professors don't. <laughs> so, um, so I wanted to raise two questions. Um, first, you know, individual responsibility um, is really important, individual liberty. So instead of going for a government solution, now that you've made us all aware of this gender gap, what advice do you have um, for young women who would like to get married and young men who would like to get married? Um, and specifically those in DC, if you could dig into some of the DC numbers, sure. I think that might be of interest to the crowd. So, so the, the, the DC dating market is very similar to the nationwide averages. Among millennials, there's a four women for every three men among college grads. Now, among older singles, women in their 30s, it actually looks better than the national average, but I suspect it's not. Um, the, uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a long-winded explanation. So, so um, if, you're, if you're digging through census data, one of, one of my frustrations is that the Census Bureau does not ask people about sexual orientation. So you kind of have to, um, 
do some back-of-the-envelope math. And I, I consulted with Gary Gates, who's basically the nation's leading expert on LGBTQ demographics. He's at, um, he's at UCLA. And Gates told me that, that cities that are known as being particularly gay-friendly, and I think if Washington, D.C. were a state, it would, be, it would have the largest gay population of any state in the country. Um, cities that, that are considered gay-friendly tend to have disproportionate numbers of gay men, but not disproportionate numbers of lesbian women. So if you do the math, it, it, my, my guesstimate is that 10% of the single men who are college educated in DC and Manhattan and cities like that are gay. So if you if you do that math, I, I think it's probably about 10 or 15% more college grad women than men among among people in their 30s. So, so that's the, the landscape. Um, solutions, I mean, if you're just starting out, if you're just graduating from college or just, you know, you're very young, I mean, the geography does matter. As you move from the East Coast to the West Coast, the numbers become more female-friendly. So I, I mentioned Silicon Valley, cities like Seattle, Denver, San Diego. In general, they tend to have more female-friendly gender ratios. Now, all that said, I totally get that a 35-year-old woman with a life and a career in Washington, D.C. is not going to pick up her whole life and relocate to Denver. I mean, I, I, I get that. Uh, so this is really directed more at, at women maybe just graduating from college. Um, another suggestion would be consider the suburbs. As, as totally counterintuitive as it sounds, suburbs actually tend to have more women-friendly ratios of single college grad men to women than city centers do. And I know you think all the guys out there are married, but in fact, the dating demographics show otherwise. Um, I, I happen to live in Westchester County, New York, which is a big New York City suburb. Um, it's one of the few well-populated uh, counties in the nation where um, where uh, college grad men, um, where, the, where the ratio was 50-50. Um, another solution, assuming or if you have a boyfriend, um, would be to embrace the marriage ultimatum. <laughs> um, you know, when, when I was young, or even maybe not so young, my dad used to have this advice he would give me about how you should never make a decision any sooner than you have to. And I mean, it's good advice in general, like apply to business. Or I mean, He wasn't talking about dating. I mean, he, he was you know, talking about you know, other things. But, and it, but if you apply that kind of logic to dating, and I'm, I fear that lots of men are, um, why make a lifelong commitment to one woman when you can continue to survey the field and see what your options are? So the way you push back against that, in my mind, is with a marriage ultimatum. Because what ultimatums do is they create artificial scarcity in an otherwise abundant marketplace. They make us want more what we fear we could lose. Great. So. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, we'll now open it up to the auditorium. Um, all right, let's start right over there. And we'll have someone bring you the microphone. Hi, my name is Erica Smith, and I'm with the Institute for Justice. My question is, do you know what happens to long-term relationships and marriages in places like Caltech after the men graduate and move someplace with more women? Um, I had a 
the I had a conversation with um, somebody in the alumni office at Caltech, and she told me that there are a lot of uh, Caltech couples who end up getting married. Okay. Um, over here, right in the middle here. Hello, my name is Justine. Thank you so much for coming here to talk about your book. Um, thank you so much for talking about your book. Um, I f flew through it and I loved it. Good. I thank recommend you. everybody should read it. It confirmed like every paranoid fear that I had. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, I'm not paranoid. I actually just think logically. Um, my question is about um, your suggestion at the end of the book that um, well, not suggestion, but maybe prediction that more college-educated women would be um, in mixed-collar marriages with blue-collar men. Um, do you think these marriages would actually last? Because, I mean, I've tried dating men who don't have college degrees or are not as educated um, or from a totally different background, and I really couldn't imagine having to spend like my whole life with them, <laughs> much less much less having to raise children because we have very different ideas on how, how children should be raised. And so, yeah. So I have a, a good friend from college. She's an Ivy League educated school teacher. Um, and after some years of dating struggles, uh, she ended up marrying the head janitor in her school. They've been married for 20 years. They've raised a phenomenal son together. They're a great couple. And I have to admit that the notion that she lowered her standards or compromised or settled, it really irritates me. Um, and I, it would bother me if somebody suggested to their son that uh, his mom settled or compromised or lowered her standards in order to marry his dad. So I mean, I. I, I get what you're saying, and I'm sure that 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 it will take time for these kinds of relationships to become uh, more accepted. But I kind of feel like it's inevitable. Um, we'll take a question from Twitter, really quick. Um, so, John, this question asks: You quoted a lot of data based on millennials. To what degree does it extrapolate? to Gen X and Gen Y? So among um, singles, or among people in their 30s, it's essentially five college grad women for every four college grad men. So it's not quite as bad. Um, and it's, so the last year that more women than men, more, more men than women graduated from college was 1981. So, you can, based on those numbers, Gen Xers, I'm a Gen Xer, the, the numbers were somewhat lopsided back then, but I, I don't think in a statistically, or not as meaningful way statistically as they are today, either for, is Gen Y people in their 30s, is that? Um, I think maybe it was Gen Z, the next the next generation of. Yeah, I, 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 think it's, I think it's more, I think the demographics are a bigger issue for people in their 20s and 30s than 40s and 50s. Okay, let's go toward the back, um, right there. Hi, thank you. 
Uh, my name is Pratik. I'm doing my PhD in game theory right now. Uh, I'm, my question is, uh, I understand the story is mainly about the deficit, but whether dating apps like Tinder and stuff are good for finding lasting relationships and that they allow us to connect with more people or they make us choose on like more superficial categories that just aren't important for a long-lasting relationship. I mean, I, I do suspect apps like Tinder change who we end up connecting with, but I don't believe that they're responsible for the hookup culture. Um, and as I said earlier, I, I, I also think that all of these dating apps, whether it's Tinder or Match.com, they, they kind of reinforce... Um, we tend to check off boxes for people just like us. Um, so the, the fact that somebody likes what you like doesn't necessarily mean you're going to click with them romantically. Um, and what we all end up doing is checking off the things that we like on our dating sites, and that doesn't always lead to the best match, I think. Um, right here, I'm second from the end. Testing. Um, David Abraham, unaffiliated, retired, and divorced. Um, <laughs> so, so one of the things that all of you speakers never seem to get, when I went to college and had my first like, co-ed class, what became clear to me was that women are smarter than men. And that's something that you guys never even brought up. And that perhaps in that regard, maybe women should stop looking for equals or not go to college. That's a little tug-in-cheek and nobody's laughing. Um, I thought it was really funny. So. And, with, and, and just a, a thought with regard to the marriage ultimatum, as long as the culture expects the man to ask the question, marriage ultimatum is a really bad idea. Just cut and run. <laughs> Well, the man knows how long he has. Just leave. Yes. So I, I, I disagree on the ultimatums. I think if the answer is no, um, I still view that as a positive outcome because you've saved yourself from wasting another year with a guy who just can't commit. Um, as for the women being smarter, if you buy my book, which is outside for sale in the lobby, um, I, I point out that 70% of high school valedictorians last year were girls. Uh, girls get higher grades in school, they perform, um, they do their homework more. I mean, there's all sorts of metrics which show that when it comes to, to actual schoolwork, girls are much better at it. But I actually don't believe that the, if you look at raw intelligence tests, men and women or boys and girls score comparably. Here's what I think is going on, and feel free to disagree. Uh, the neuroscience on child development shows that boy brains lag about a year behind girl brains in terms of maturity. So when we're talking about intellectual maturity and social maturity, a an eight-year-old boy is kind of the same as a seven-year-old girl. Um, and what's interesting is if you look at the, those handful of countries that um, Emily mentioned where the gender gap in college uh, enrollment is narrower, one of them is Switzerland. And what I find so fascinating about Switzerland is that in Switzerland they do two full years of kindergarten, which means the kids don't start learning how to 
do math or read and write until age seven, as opposed to age six in other countries. And my belief is that this, this delay basically gives the, the boys a year to catch up to the girls. Um, and there have also been studies looking at test scores in the US and Chile and other countries. And what they show is the boys who are held back a year tend to, tend to um, score, uh, uh, tend to enjoy bigger increases in, in test scores than girls who are held back a year. So my thought on this is that if, if we, we can have a grassroots movement among parents of boys to redshirt their boys, essentially, and have them start first grade at age seven instead of age six, I think this would go a long way towards closing the college gender gap. Hi, uh, thanks so much for speaking. My name is Tojil Desai. I'm a graduate student at Georgetown um, and actually a San Francisco native. So I have a lot of firsthand experience um, in dating in San Francisco. Um, and what I've noticed is, um, so we have something there called the Peter Pan syndrome, um, where a lot of the men, um, as you said, have a hard time sort of uh, settling down, um, committing to a long-term relationship. And what I've noticed is that um, a lot of older men tend to date younger women, and there's this um, very wide age gap. And I was wondering if you have any sort of data that shows that this is uh, in a growing trend in these cities or that you know relationships are moving in this direction. Well, the, if you look at national data on age gap at marriage, it's actually narrowed over the past 50 years or so. Um, but I think what you're observing, um, uh, I, I, if you think about dating in terms of supply and demand, and if you're a 50-year-old man, where's the excess supply? Um, I know that's crude, but, but the, the, the excess supply is, in the, is among the younger women. So I think there's a, a market-based explanation for what you're talking about. Let's take another question from Twitter. Um, this person asks, John, have you considered the effect of self-selected social clusters like various religious groups in their dating behavior? That is a great question. Um, <laughs> yes, in fact, I did. And uh, in the book, I have a whole chapter on two particular religious groups, very conservative religious groups, Mormons in Utah and ultra-Orthodox Jews everywhere. And... Uh, <laughs> And, and the, they have their own demographic crisis. They have their own shortage of men. It's not about college, though. Um, among Mormons, because um, there's more pressure on men to do missions, um, men have been dropping out of the Mormon church at a higher rate than women. So, you, so in the state of Utah, there have been studies that show that among Mormons, there is now a three to two gender ratio among marriage age people. So there is a massive marriage crisis going on um, in Utah right now among Mormons. And it's played out amazingly in ways frighteningly similar to what you see here. Believe it or not, uh, there, there's a, um, a plastic surgery um, consumer review site whose name I'm, it'll come to me, realself.com. They did a survey which showed that Salt Lake City leads the nation in boob jobs. 
And I interviewed a plastic surgeon um, in Salt Lake City who told me he has college-age girls coming to him for Botox treatments. So the, what, what, what's happened is it's created this ultra-competitive, unhealthy dating market uh, because there aren't enough men. In the ultra-Orthodox world, which you would think would be completely immune, or at least I'm Jewish, so I would think it would be completely immune to this stuff, the young... The, there's a, there's a significant age gap at marriage. Um, frequently you have 18-year-old girls or women, 18-year-old women marrying men who are 22 or 23. And that's because in, in a big segment of the ultra-Orthodox community, the boys do three or four years at the yeshiva, which is a Jewish seminary, and then spend a year you know, studying Torah and Talmud in Israel, and then they don't get married until they get back. But they marry um, women who are three, four, five years younger than them. Um, because the birth rate among the ultra-Orthodox community is so high, each one-year age cohort in the ultra-Orthodox community has about 4 or 5% more than the one that preceded it, which means there are 4% more 18-year-olds than 19-year-olds, 4% more 19-year-olds than 20-year-olds, and so on and so on. This age gap at marriage among the ultra-Orthodox Jews has created an oversupply of women because there are obviously going to be more 18-year-old women than 22-year-old men. And this community doesn't realize they have a demographic problem. They think they have a cultural crisis. They think that the boys are too picky or the girls are holding out for the Jewish George Clooney or something like that. I mean, they, they don't understand what's going on. Um, and it's also had an incredibly unhealthy effect on young women in this community. The, the rate of anorexia among ultra-Orthodox Jewish women is about 50% higher than national averages. Also, these young women, this is, gonna, this is incredible, but these young women are expected to provide uh, resumes. They, most of these, most of these um, marriages are, are essentially arranged, I mean, loosely arranged by, by matchmakers in the Orthodox community. And the girls are expected to produce resumes that I assume once upon a time that was more family background. You know, my great-grandfather was a famous Rebbe in Poland. And like the, it probably once upon a time was more benign. Now, the girls are expected to produce glossy photos. They have to disclose their own dress size and the dress size of their mother so that the, the guys can, can project forward after five or six kids what she might look like. I mean, it's created this incredibly unhealthy impact on this community. They don't realize it's a demographic problem, um, and they didn't really appreciate me pointing it out either, but that's another, <laughs> another story. Okay. Thank you for all three of you for speaking to us today. This has been very interesting. Um, one question I have is, um, I feel like there's a lot of vilification of men that's starting to happen, just given rate, you know, increasing rates of sexual assault. And it's hard not to listen to stories like the impact this has on women and not blame men. So if did you ever hear any stories about men feeling yeah, vilified? I, yeah, I mean, I did a, a radio podcast with a, a kind of a men's rights advocate, and I, I heard a lot of that. Um, uh, and if you read the comments section on YouTube, uh, you know, I, there's about a thousand comments, you know, saying I'm a terrible person. Uh, <laughs> um, um, I, 
I, I guess here's what I have to say. First, I'm not trying to be in the morality police. Like, I, I don't care. I mean, I'm not endorsing marriage or even monogamy. I'm not telling people they have to get married. And I'm not even, you know, I, I, I'm not, Karen and I might disagree on this, but I, I'm not saying the hookup culture is wrong. Um, I'm just trying to explain why the world is the way it is. And when it comes to men feeling kind of vilified on college campuses, I, I guess here's the analogy I would use. Um, when it comes to police brutality claims, you, like, you don't get police brutality um, cases um, in Scarsdale, New York, or in places where there isn't already a lot of crime. You get it in big cities. And I think this is not a perfect analogy, but I kind of think that's what's going on. You're seeing more false accusations because there are more actual crimes happening. So that's my take. Thank you very much. Uh, again, appreciate your comments. I was mostly uh, gathering notes for potential t TED Talks or TEDx Talks and things like that, so very helpful material. I might be in touch with you about that. Um, the economic aspect that I was wondering is whether or not you looked at the downline effects of all of this hyper-selectivity or no-selectivity in moving on to marriage in the sense of delayed marriage, delayed childbirth, fewer children, uh, et cetera, et cetera. It seems like there is a, a rolling economic effect that continues to happen as a result of this shortfall. Any comments on that? Well, certainly, um, marriage is good for us financially. Again, I'm not endorsing marriage, but there's a lot of studies on this which show that that it's expensive to be single. Um, I'm guessing there are lots of single people out there who can vouch for that. Um, and being married, being married is economically efficient. It means one house, not two. It means one car, sometimes not two. It means you're cooking for, for four people instead of two separate meals. For you get there, are, there are economies of scale associated with marriage. So if we we are, um, if marriage is less commonplace, that's not a good thing economically. On children. I'm sorry. Um. I, I don't have a, a good answer about whether having lots of children or more or a few children is better for the economy. Okay. Um. Hi, my name is Dustin. I work in international development. And you spoke a bit about what's going on in China in terms of the skewed gender ratios right now. And if you look next door at uh, India, of course, we have a similar phenomenon happening, particularly in the north northwestern part of the country. Yet, I mean, I've been working on gender in South Asia for a few years now. I haven't seen any evidence that supports that uh, women are gaining any more, um, say, in the marketplace uh, as a result of the phenomenon that's happening. I was wondering if you, while you were writing your book, if you came across uh, Anything particular about what's no, going on in India? You come up to me afterwards. It was just a, a story written by some Indian newspaper talking about um, Indian datanomics and how the women had more leverage. Um, now, I, I assume that that this was written more, you know, less for people in rural parts of India, and probably more for city dwellers. Um, but I, I do think it's a phenomenon there as well. We have time for one more question. Let's go right here in the front. You can decide. <laughs> Hi, I'm Megan. I work in cybersecurity. Um, 
I was curious if you had anything that you learned about men that are college educated dating women who are not college educated, because I, I don't know if anyone would agree with me on this, but I've noticed um, sometimes I'm tiptoeing to not emasculate a guy that I'm dating, and that's my question. You see, I, I, <laughs> I, I, I kind of feel like there's going to have to be an adjustment period. I mean, I. I can't prove this, but I, I, I sus or I could if I had the data. But I suspect that if we were talking 50 years ago about interracial marriages, I bet that the failure rate of those marriages was higher than the national average, just because of the of the stress on those kinds of relationships. And I suspect in the first generation, so to speak, of mixed collar marriages, there could be some of that as well. It's just going to take time for us to to adapt. What I will say is that Pew Research did, that, so the, the college gender gap is bigger in the African American community than it is nationally. And Pew Research showed some numbers, or published some numbers showing that African American women are much more comfortable with dating, educated African American women are much more comfortable with dating and marrying um, non-college grad African American men than white folks are. And I, I kind of view the African-American community as on the cutting edge of a broader societal change. And like, I don't, this isn't, this may be out of left field, but I don't know, have any of you ever seen a Tyler, a Tyler Perry movie? Yes. <laughs> I mean, you ever notice how there's always some high-powered African-American career woman married to a mechanic with a heart of gold, right? I mean, that's like every movie, right? If this were a white movie, you would need like a five-minute on-screen explanation for why Julia Roberts' CEO character was married to a fireman. And I, I kind of feel like, like if we talk 10 years from now, it won't be as big a deal. So we have time for one more question from Karen right before we head out. Thank you. Since we are at a public policy organization, yep. I wanted to end with a policy question okay. for you. I think a lot sure. of times we talk about what we can do to benefit women in public policy and don't talk about the secondary effects and the impact on men. And one area we talk a lot about this is on college campuses and the impact of Title IX. We talk about sports, trying to get more women in sports, but what are the secondary effects of that on men and um, how that's impacting how many men go to college. So I was wondering if you could end by talking about Title IX or if there's any other public policies where you would encourage our friends in D.C., where we are now, to, to think about those secondary effects on men. I, I do have a, a small quibble with Title IX, although it's not the... Um it's probably not the one you're expecting, or you are, because we talked about this before. But anyway, um, so um, <laughs> um, the reason I don't think the gender imbalance in college in the U.S. is related to Title IX is because this same imbalance exists in every Western country. Even in China, where there is 20% more men than women overall, there is still 11% more women than men in higher education there. So it's clear that this is not a public policy thing. This is a everywhere issue. This is a child brain development, child development, neuroscience issue. But my one little quibble with Title IX is that, like I said before, I do believe that we should as a society, think long and hard about starting boys in school a year later than girls. The problem is that under Title IX, it would be illegal for a school district to have a policy that said that boys start um, first grade at age seven and girls start at age six. Um, now, most school districts do give parents flexibility to 
delay when their kids start school, so maybe you wouldn't need a, a change to Title IX. Um, maybe this could be kind of a grassroots movement among parents. But, I, but if I could change one thing about Title IX, that would be it. Thank you. Thank you, John, and thank you, everyone, for coming tonight. It was great having you. We'll now have a reception outside held in both the Winter Garden on the first floor and also on the second floor in the George M. Yeager Conference Center up the spiral staircase. Um, restaurant, uh, restrooms are located on this level to the left of the elevators and on the lower level. Um, and thank you all for coming. <laughs>